All right, welcome to the conversation on the TYT network. Uh, now we're gonna go to Jeff Ernsthausen. Uh, he's a senior data reporter for ProPublica. Uh, they did an amazing story about uh, the top 25 wealthiest uh, people in the country and how they often avoid taxes, sometimes paying absolutely nothing. So uh, it's an important uh, piece uh, that should inform public opinion. So Jeff, it's great to have you on with us. Thanks for having me. No problem. So. Um, First of all, the top 25, how much did they get away with? How how deep is this problem? So our story is about a relatively simple point, which is that most people listening to this show right now, they pay taxes whenever they get a paycheck, right? So you earn wages, you earn a salary, and taxes are taken automatically out of that. The ultra wealthy, live largely outside of the tax system. So they're able to basically pay taxes when they make a decision such as to sell stock. And so they can accrue vast fortunes without paying taxes on it by keeping their income as the IRS recognizes it down. So we looked at the top 25 for this story and we found that over a five year period from 2014 to 2018, their collective wealth grew by $400 billion. And they paid federal taxes that amounted to just 3.4% of that. So Jeff, of course, a lot of people will say and have said, yes, but that wasn't their income. That was their wealth, right? Their wealth grew by 400 billion and you pay taxes on your income and not on your wealth. So when you look at their income, how did that play out? Is it, oh well, look, man, they're they're paying 40% of their income and they're abiding by the law and everything's hunky-dory. It's just they're so rich that it's a small percentage or were there issues there? So nothing that we looked at in this story was about sort of illegal ways of getting around paying taxes. This is all sort of like routine legal methods for keeping one's tax bill down. That said, the income tax rate sort of using the IRS definition of income tax rate is also quite low for this group. We found that they were close to 16% over the five year period. and. Uh, out of curiosity, I looked at my own taxes the other day, and I paid like 24% in federal taxes when you take in account payroll, you know, Social Security and Medicare taxes plus federal income taxes. So they're paying a relatively low tax rate, even with the sort of classic definition. So obviously, the question is how. Um, so you, you guys talked in that story, and we covered it on the Young Turks, 2014, 2018. You just mentioned. Four hundred billion dollars. Now that's actually was a nice warm act, warm up act. <coughs> excuse me for what happened in twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one, where they've accumulated a lot more wealth. Right, that group. That's Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, Bill Gates, etc. Right, um, but those guys. It's one thing if they're not paying money on their wealth, but when they pay a lower tax rate than you and I do, that is infuriating. We'll come back to the wealth in a second, but on the income, how? How do they pay so little? Well, it's a combination of things, right? So when you choose the time at which you take income, you can do things like time your charitable giving so that you're able to reduce that bill. You're also, you know, for certain folks in these categories, like they can take certain kinds of write-offs, for instance, interest on interest on investments. They can take off of their tax bill. So there's various ways of lowering it, but the sort of main thrust is that 
by keeping your income low by, you know, for instance, taking a small salary, but taking stock as your form of compensation, uh, you can keep your, your income down and therefore keep your tax bill low. So uh, they're artificially keeping their income low and then uh, also artificially inflating their expenses, thereby not having much to pay taxes on. Um, so in terms of uh, deflating their income, if you're and pick a name out of a hat for all those guys, but let's stick with Musk. You're Elon Musk and you've got over $100 billion or whatever he's up to. But if you can't take any of it out because you're worried about paying taxes, well, it isn't gonna do you much good. But they do have ways of taking it out. I mean, it's not like they're strapped for cash, right? So how do they actually access their money? Well, Elon Musk is a great example. So other disclosures with the SEC for Tesla show that he borrowed against some $60 billion worth of his shares of Tesla. So you know, you might think, well, if they're not taking income, where do they get money? Well, one answer is that they can borrow money, right? The same way that sort of more ordinary American might borrow against the value of their house. So first of all, I, when I read that, I thought that was so funny. You really need a $60 billion loan? I mean, <laughs> how are you gonna run out of 1 billion? Why did you bother to borrow the other 59 billion? I mean, you couldn't possibly spend it. Even Elon Musk couldn't spend it if he tried. Um, so I don't know why he did that. I don't know that you, you know why he took out such a gigantic number. But more importantly, um, well, if they take out money in loans um, based on the stocks that they have, that comes pretty damn close to cheating. Um, and so is the government ever gonna do anything about it? Is there anything, a movement afoot to say, hey, wait a minute, you can't just borrow on your stock. That's just the way of avoiding taxes and it's super obvious. Well, it's kind of interesting. The historical father of the income tax actually predicted this back in 1920 or so, sort of said that if you don't recognize this kind of uh, asset growth as any kind of income, then people will just be able to borrow against it. Um, and that's sort of exactly what's played out in the um, century that's followed. Right, and so, so there's some folks there who are opposed to a wealth tax, right? Uh, but when they see a story like yours, uh, it becomes super hard to oppose one. Uh, because it's one thing if, hey, listen, you got a growing company and um, and you can't get money out of it. Right, like in that case, Elon Musk is a bad example because he had he had already become a billionaire before he started Tesla. But let's take Mark Zuckerberg. So he starts Facebook. It's a growing company, but he hasn't actually cashed out anything. If the government says, "Hey, pay money on your theoretical wealth," he just doesn't literally have the cash when he was younger to pay it for it because the company hasn't gone public. It's not liquid, etc. Right? But when they get to a stage where they're all over a billion dollars. I mean, you don't have the cash to pay for it. Well, you just did the trick where you loaned money, where you borrowed money so you wouldn't have to pay taxes. So apparently you could borrow the money to pay the taxes. So doesn't that basically vitiate their argument against the wealth tax? Well, you know, our story was sort of focused on getting information out there that policymakers could use to sort of inform these discussions. But certainly people have thought about this, economists who have thought about this have come up with ideas for how you might handle something like that. For instance, people have proposed that you might be able to pay in kind, you know, pay with shares of Facebook, for instance, or pay on the gains over a long period of time. So instead of, you know, 
not like you pay on a billion dollars when you when you earn the billion dollars, you could pay it out over the course of several years after that. And if you know asset values do go up and down, so if they came back down, you could always knock it off of the bill, or even possibly you could imagine some system where that was refunded. Yeah, so it, it, for now there seems to be less and less excuses for wealth tax. I'm curious, you were part of the team that did this great report, it got tons of attention, which doesn't always happen. So. <laughs> Wonderful, right? Um, a lot of people do great journalism about the injustice in the system and, and no one sees it. In your case, a lot of people did see it. So I'm curious, did any um, legislators reach out to you guys afterwards and say, hey, I want to find out more? Or um, has there been no political fallout from it? Uh, well, we heard from a lot of folks, uh, mostly in the public domain. Uh, Twitter is often the place where people go to express their uh, opinions about about stories these days. Um, so you've seen some reaction from folks like Elizabeth Warren, who've long been calling for this, um, and we've also seen sort of the other side of things: people calling for you know investigation into how we obtain this information. Um, so you've kind of seen. Um, kind of both sides of, uh, of reaction to this. Well, Jeff, are you worried about that? Because um, so the IRS information of individuals is not supposed to be released. And so you guys note in the story, now normally that's not a thing that, that you guys would pursue, but these are the, the top 25 wealthiest people in the country and public policy uh, is very relevant in, in regards to them in specific. And by the way, you guys didn't mention it, but I'll, I'll finish the other half of the thought. Through their donations, they could basically buy our entire government. So if they are the purchasers of our government, I think it's more fair to be able to see what they're purchasing it with. And that includes their taxes or their lack of paying taxes. Um, but um, you know, when people leak positive stories in the government, even if it's classified or top secret, no one ever gets in trouble. But when folks leak things that are damaging to the powerful, We'll just ask Chelsea Manning and Edward Stone how that turned out. So, um, are you personally concerned? Well, of course, it's concerning when you're uh, when you you, know, you hear about an investigation related to something that you're working on. Um, but you know, I'm uh, we we take great comfort, I, I suppose, in the administration's statements. Uh, Several days before our story came out, saying that they would not be doing things like what we found out in recent days was being done by the previous administration, involving, you know, seeking seeking people's emails or, or um, phone records. Um, so we, we do take some comfort in that. Yeah, and you're right to ask for that comfort because uh, the Obama Biden administration was the one that started charging reporters with the Espionage Act, so you never know. Uh, and uh, so last thing, have you heard any defense from the top 25 to, to the story where they say, "Oh no, of course we should pay very little taxes, taxes are for the little people? Well, interestingly, there was a response from uh, Warren Buffett, um, you know, who has typically advocated for uh, policies that might raise taxes on those who are earning high incomes. Um, he he said more or less that um, in regards to sort of his plan to give away all of his money prior to you know uh, when he dies, um, and that you know of course that money won't then end up being taxed. And he said it's his preference to uh, give the money to philanthropic causes rather than to pay down the U.S. debt, um, which is you know it's an interest it's an interesting response. Of course, those uh, charitable contributions may do a lot of good. Uh, it's just not an option for most of us to sort of choose whether or not uh, our tax 
our tax money is going to go, you know, into the general fund or to to things that we're interested in. Yeah, there's only so much this can last that people can't take this anymore. When and when wealthy people say like, "Oh, you have to pay your tax, otherwise we're going to put you in jail." But me, I choose to give it to some charities of my own, you know, desire. And I know I don't choose to give it to the government. That is infuriating, and and ironically, Warren Buffett is the best of them because he actually is giving it to charity. The others are generally not doing that or lying about it. Anyways, that's my opinion on it. But Jeff was part of the ProPublica team that did a rare act of journalism, and we wanted to find out more about it and celebrate it here. So thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. All right, back on the conversation. We got a great guest for you guys. One of the original Justice Democrats, Amy Villela. She's back. She's running for Congress, and well, you guys know what I think. I love it. So she's running in Nevada, one against a Democratic incumbent, Nina Titus. Amy, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be back. No problem. So, of course, you were knocked down the House, and. AOC was in that, she won in 2018 in our first cycle. Cori Bush was in it, she won in 2020. And what are you gonna do? I guess you gotta win in 2022. I just, you know, they, they gotta make a They're sequel. That's just how the movie <laughs> plays out. That's, that's, our hands are tied. Um, yes. Okay, so first, let me ask generically, why get back into running as a candidate? I think we're in a very unique time where we really need to have bold leadership. In my district, especially, you know, when I was out and about, everyone is saying the same thing. Where are our representatives? Especially during COVID, this really, really got brought to light. As I was out there, you know, sewing hundreds of masks for our frontline workers, organizing food drives. The same thing was being said, you know, where is our leadership? Um, Las Vegas is one of the hardest hit economically uh, cities in the country. On top of having a huge uh, housing crisis, and our leadership is not out there fighting for the bold solutions that we really need. I mean, I think they're intent on passing half measures if they pass anything at all. And why particularly Titus? Titus has been consistently ranked one of the least effective representatives in Nevada. She's been in office for over a decade and only has one bill to show for it. What we need is we need legislators who are in there and ready to fight and going to use every tool at their disposal for to to bring the bold legislation that we need. We know that it takes a lot of work just to get legislation to the floor. You have to work around the clock and really be fighting in order just to even get it to the floor. You have to be able to organize both in DC and locally in your community and with the frontline organizations that are on the ground. And this is something that's just not been happening. You know. Politics really is about life and death decisions, and we need action now. We deserve more. Um, so I remember people said, "Well, if you knock out Joe Crowley, that's really going to hurt Queens and the other parts of the district because he's the fourth-ranking Democrat, and he does so much for the district." And of course, when just Democrats asked, "Really? What? What does he do for the district?" 
and no one had any good answer for that. Now, if you go back, even if you follow politics a lot, can you anyone name anything that Crowley did? Um, where, <laughs> whereas we can all name the things that AOC fought for and the things that you're gonna fight for. And it turns out fighting makes a difference. Same thing with Lacey Clay, sat around doing nothing. Then Cori Bush comes in and instantly starts fighting like crazy for the voters, for real people. And so just the, the size of the fight in the person makes a giant difference. I mean, look, all anybody talks about is the 10 just Democrats. It looks like they're the, as the equivalent of the rest of Congress. That's because they're bothering to fight. And one of the reasons is because you guys are not held back by corporate donors. Are you running with no corporate PAC money again? Absolutely, not taking a cent. Um, for me, it, it's it's the moral thing to do, and there's no way that I'm taking a cent of it, knowing the part it played in my own daughter's death. Uh, definitely not going to have a dime of corporate money. So, Amy, I know we talked about it a couple of years back when you were on the show many, several times, many times. Uh, but for folks who don't know, tell us what happened to your daughter and and why that got you into politics in the first place. Yeah, definitely. My entering the politics came on the heels of tragedy. You know, in 2015, my daughter was going to school. She was working full time. She was wanting to become an RN. She moved out to Las Vegas home and drove from Kansas City to Las Vegas 22 hours. And she arrived with a red swollen leg. And I remember telling me to look at it. And I was like, oh, you must have just sat on it wrong. And and I was on the way out um, to a business meeting and I kept on getting phone calls. So I eventually took it from her in the meeting and she was crying. And she had been told that uh, immediately upon going to the emergency room, uh, she was told that, you know, where's your insurance? And she said she didn't have any. They told her to leave. It wouldn't cost as much if she left now. She said she was going to stay. They were asking her to call the insurance companies. I told her, don't worry about it. You know, I got another phone call and she was crying this time in the back and saying, Mommy, they're not helping me. I've asked them for something for the pain. I told them that I needed more testing. I needed something like an MRI on my leg. And they told me to go get insurance and see a specialist. You know, my daughter was black. She had sickle cell trait on birth control, had a healing ACL tear, just driven 22 hours with a red swollen leg. And those are all symptoms and risk factors for a blood clot. And they essentially sent my daughter off to her death. She died from a pulmonary embolism. And that was the death of me as I knew myself then. You know, at that point, I had risen up to become a CFO. And, but I was reminded when she passed that we are only as strong as the most vulnerable in our communities. And if we're not fighting for each other, all of us are vulnerable. You know, it's, it's a lie to say that if we just work hard enough, we're safe. It's not true. We have to fight for more. We have to fight for each other on all different levels and and and, and all the issues. Amy, I, I actually think about your daughter often. Uh, whenever my kids have an issue, and we're wondering should we take him in or not, I always take him in uh, because you never know. You never know. And what kind of an unbelievably brutal system do we live under, where we let people die if they didn't pay a certain thing? I, I mean, I talk about the fire insurance example all the time. We, in America, that you used to have private fire insurance. If your house was burning down and your kid was inside, if you didn't have insurance, they wouldn't go in and rescue them. We got rid of that because it was so barbaric. It's the same thing for medical insurance. It's the same thing.
But but Amy, I, I read a story from the Las Vegas Review Journal about this race, and they claim that Titus was among the most liberal of the Nevada contingent in Congress, and that she was for Medicare for all. Um, what do you say to that? And and how do you think she arrived at that position? Yeah, well, she arrived at that position after attending the first ever Medicare for all rally that I threw back in 2017. And I'm glad to have helped her sign on to the bill. She had been approached many, many times about it. But it's not enough. It's not enough to say I'm with you on this issue. It's not enough. They've been saying I'm with you. I remember seeing videos from 1993 when my daughter was born, the year my daughter was born, and nothing has been done. It's not enough to just have a reliable vote. We must be fighting and using every tool at our disposal in order to make sure that we pass this legislation. And if your heart's not into it and you're not in there for the fight, then it won't get done. We have to have fighters in Congress. Again, that's like the most important thing that we need right now is to have fighters in Congress. We need to increase the numbers and have people who are going to be bold. I mean, one of the last things I promised my daughter was I will fight and to make sure that you are not, that your death is not in vain. And I will do that to my last breath. And it's whether it's about health care, whether it's about police brutality, whether it's about immigrant rights, all of these things are worth us fighting for. Um, to make sure that no one else has to go through this kind of pain. Yeah, and guys, since she's not running on corporate PAC money, you know you gotta go to amyvillalo.com. And uh, you guys made a difference for Corey and Jamal and uh, AOC and Rashida Tlaib, and it goes on and on. Uh, so we know that it's possible. We've done it many times before together. Uh, and, and so it's important here as well, especially yeah. uh, when they just, uh, take grassroots money and that's all. All right, so Amy, but I want to continue with Titus. I don't trust the mainstream media, so they tell me she's liberal. That doesn't mean anything to me. Uh, so is she in the progressive camp or, or the corporate camp of the Democratic Party? So she likes she. You know, many people say they're progressive, but again, it comes down to what are your actions? What are you doing actually? Um, it's easy to say I agree with you on something, but if we're not fighting for it, again, are you really? Are you really hearing the cries of people? Are you really feeling their pain? We need to have people in Congress that are going to fight and people who have the lived experience. I mean, I think that's so important to talk about as well. People that have been poor. I mean, I've been poor, I've been homeless, I've been on WIC and Medicaid and food stamps. I know what that struggle is like. I know what it's like to lose someone because of them not having adequate health insurance. So these are all lived experiences that I think are drivers for people who are everyday Americans that are so badly needed as representatives in Congress. So Amy, though, for example, is she was she for Bernie or Biden? She was for Biden. She was one of the first early endorsers, and I think she was on record going as far as to say that Bernie supporters are rabid. So, hmm. <laughs> okay, she's not a big well, fan of her. All right, apparently you and I are rabid. I did not know that. Okay. Yeah. Um, so uh, that that seems very clear. Uh, by the way, if you're for Medicare for all, it was not confusing which candidate was for it and which candidate was against it. And I'm always reminded of Tim Ryan. Look, he's a guy that I like personally, but my job is to cover the news and politics honestly. And Tim signed on as a co-sponsor for Medicare for all. And when I asked him on the presidential campaign, uh, if you're president, would you uh, fight for Medicare for all? He said, "Oh, I'm not even in favor of it." They wow. just they just sign on 
because of politics. Yeah. Uh, but if they get power, they don't actually want to do it. So uh, whereas there's no question Amy wants to do it, none whatsoever. And so um, in, in terms of um, the incumbency, etc. Again, people are gonna say, um, well, okay, I hear you, Bernie won Nevada big, but how is Nevada won and why are we going after a Democratic incumbent? So can you tell us about that? Sure. We have been, we have not stopped the organizing on the ground. We haven't stopped it even since my run and it only increased during the primary. We have made a lot of relationships with organizers on the front line. There is a lot of excitement about you know, getting someone in that's actually gonna fight for the things that are affecting Nevadans. I mean, we, when we talk about Nevada, we're one of the fastest growing and fastest warming cities in the nation. Yet our representatives are trying to add the size of Washington DC to the, the south or southern part of Nevada. I mean, of Las Vegas, when we talk about, we have the largest immigrant, undocumented immigrant population per capita. And still we saw they were left out of the COVID bill. I mean, these are things that, our communities are on the front lines fighting for um, over and over again, and they want change. And we have a huge support system. Um, we've seen the, the progressives even recently were able to uh, take over the, the state party, and they also lead the, the Clark County Democratic Party. So we've made tremendous strides in uh, making sure our voices have been heard, and people are excited about the possibility of having a representative that they can stand behind and work with, organize with to make sure that the solutions that we need so badly are actually attained. All right, Amy Villala running in Nevada's first district. It's amyvillala.com. We'll have the link down below if you're watching later on YouTube or Facebook. And one of the original Justice Democrats. So Amy, great to see you again. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. I'd like to say too that this fundraising is the most important thing right now in our campaign. So it's it really would help if people invest now in our campaign. We're running against, like you said, an establishment Democrat. So all eyes are gonna be on this campaign. And you can donate at amy.vegas forward slash TYT. Oh, okay, God bless. <laughs> Okay. All right, good. We'll put that link down below too. Okay, thank you, Amy. We appreciate you being in the fight. Thank you.